Thank you for joining the Broadway Drumming 101 podcast with your host, Clayton Craddock. I've been looking forward to this interview for a long time. Today's guest is Ray Marchica. Ray is a longstanding member of the Ed Palermo Big Band, which specializes in the music of Frank Zappa. He's recorded with James Brown, Barbara Streisand, and has worked with Little Richard, Dan Hartman, Earl Clue, the Gatlin Brothers, Rodney Jones, Roy Buchanan, and Johnny Winter. Ray has performed live and recorded with people such as Bernadette Peters, Barbara Streisand, and Liza Minnelli. He also played drums for the house band for the Rosie O'Donnell Show for its entire six-year run and has performed with Phil Collins, Tony Bennett, Bette Midler, Cher, Mark Anthony, Shaka Khan, Jennifer Holliday, Neil Diamond, and many other guests that appeared on that show. His Broadway and theater credits include Radio City, A Chorus Line, Woman of the Year, Lacage, Starlight Express, The Will Rogers Follies, How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying, Damn Yankees, Mamma Mia, A Trip of Love, Disaster, Something Rotten, and the 2017 revival of Miss Saigon. That's an incredible resume, but let me have him tell you the story. Stay tuned. Welcome to Broadway Drumming 101 with my guest, Ray Marchica. Thank you very much for being a part of this. It's a pleasure. Thank you. When I got your email, I said, what a great idea. And, uh, and thank you for asking me. Well, glad you're here. I see you have uh, gold and platinum records back there. The, the <laughs> You must have played on plenty of them, I'm sure, in the past. No. Not no, actually, really? No, no. Uh, but I have two of them. <laughs> That's and, uh, two more than a lot of people. Yeah. So uh, one is uh, for James Brown living in America, which was in the Rocky Four movie. Yes. And the other one is a song called Waiting to See You, which was in a movie called Ruthless People. And both songs were written by the late, great Dan Hartman. Oh, you know, yes. Yeah. He, uh, amazing, he died a young man, I think he, uh, I'm not sure, he died uh, probably in the early 90s. Oh, that's sad. Yeah. How did you connect with him? I was actually dating a female percussionist named Linda Curtis. Dan Hartman had a hit record on the radio at, th- at that time called I Can Dream About You. Uh, don't ask me to sing it. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that one. You remember that? It was a big 80s hit. Yes. Huge. Late 80s. So he had a mini tour. My girlfriend at the time was playing percussion, and he had auditions for drummers. And uh, I auditioned. I really prepared because I knew he liked big drum sounds. So I, I had Simmons drums at the time. So I put triggers on my drums for the audition, and he loved it. I, I practiced, and I studied what, uh, what he wanted. So anyway, I got the gig. He liked the way I played. And then it was only a mini tour. It was like six weeks. Yeah, it, was, it was supposed to be longer, but the rest of it got canceled. And then about, I don't know, a month later, he said, 
I wrote this song for a movie, and it was called Living in America, but the, the producers of the movie wanted it to sound more live. So I was added on. I never met James Brown, unfortunately. It was done in Dan Hartman's studio. Uh, and when I played the vocal tracks with Dan doing like a reference vocal track, and all, all I had to do was like play a, a, a strong backbeat, uh, some cymbal crashes, some simple fills on top of his layered percussion. And then he used me, the same thing, with the same deal for this other song called Waiting to See You, which was not as big a hit. So I worked with Dan Hartman. He was, he was an amazing musician, producer. So that's the story with that. And at first, I didn't put him up there. This is like a, a new renovated. We renovated our apartment. I said, what the heck? I'll put him up. You were born and raised in Brooklyn? Yes. Yes. What part? Bensonhurst or Bath Beach. I guess. Uh, so it's, uh, it's near, it's between Bay Ridge and Coney Island on the south end uh, of, it's about a mile and a half from the Verrazano Narrows Bridge near the water on the Belt Parkway. Do you remember what your first musical memory was? Yeah, my uncle uh, was a very natural musician. H however, he had a vision impairment, and he couldn't read music. He couldn't, um, and uh, but he was a natural. He used to play piano with like four fingers. He could sing, but he played drums as well. And fortunately, uh, my house. It was a three-family house in Brooklyn with a basement, and he had a, a little piano, uh, a, not a, a regular upright piano, and a, and a very old drum set, and those were my first musical memories of him uh, just going down there playing simple, simple beats and grooves and singing and playing the piano, and then he taught me uh, in the very beginning, and then I got, uh, there was a, a neighborhood music school that had a very good drum teacher, and uh, uh, his name was Pete Costa, and he taught me how to read. And fortunately, he was uh, into uh, the rudiments and uh, really good drum books, which are still around today, the Buddy Rich drum book, the Charlie Wilcoxon book, some uh, stick control book. So fortunately, I was I had two good early influences. When did you get your first drum set? Well, it was my uncle's drum set, so I was like uh, 10, 10 years old, and it was an old drum set uh, with like a, I think it was a Slingerland Radio King bass drum, a Ludwig snare drum, and he, he had like a, 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 I think it was like a maybe a Kent or Stuart Tom Tom, which were not a well-known, anyway, it's just this three-piece kit, and I used to play on that, that was my first kit. I started at about 10 years old, and then when I went to middle school, I played in the band, and my middle school teacher, Alex Hershenson, I'm still in touch with him, he, uh, he took a liking to me because I, 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 was, I was studying privately, and I knew how to play the drums and read music, so he took advantage of that and, and, uh, and actually gave me a big solo to, to perform in, in middle school, so it was great. That's great. Sam Ulano, you remember Sam Ulano? Yes, I took a couple of lessons with him. He was amazing. Yeah, he came to our middle school. He gave a concert. He used to. He, Sam Ulano used to 
play the drums to fairy tales. Like he used to say, you could find them on YouTube. Like he, he tells uh, Goldilocks and the Three Bears, and he was very theatrical. And then he invited me up on sta stage to uh, to be his guest artist that day. I was fortunate to have uh, Mr. Hershenson, who got Samuelano to come to the middle school. My uncle Pete Coster. It was I had these angels around me. I guess. Did you see yourself wanting to become a professional musician? Yep. Yeah. From the I, beginning, uh, you were like, "That's what I want to do." Yep. Yeah. I did. Was there, was there any specific person that you looked up to and said, "That's what I want to do"? Did you have any drumming influences back then, or was it a, was it more of your teachers that were like, you know, supportive and say, you know, you can do this too? So my uncle had a good, great time playing music, and he played in wedding band. Uh, wedding band, and I used to uh, watch him. I used to, I went to a couple of his gigs, and I actually sat in with them, and it was thrilling for me as a twelve-year-old to you know, put on a suit and actually play and people dance. Uh, so my uncle was the first influence. And then uh, uh, Buddy Rich was the guy. Buddy Rich, I, when I saw him on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, and then uh, uh, I would also see Ed Shaughnessy on The Tonight Show. You know, those guys, I looked up to them. Uh, and uh, for, I was gravitated to the... Uh, Band, like Blood, Sweat, and Tears. I was great. I, I really liked Chicago, Blood, Sweat, and Tears. The bands that had horns in them. Something about the, the horns and the big band sound really attracted me. More so than the, what was going on in pop music. Although I did like, you know, I liked Ginger Baker and Cream and Jimi Hendrix. and I liked the, the rock drummers back then who had a jazz influence. You know? It's one thing that was prevalent back then like you said uh ginger baker john bonham you know those guys idolized people like uh elvin right. jones exactly exactly and, uh, just that you know i didn't really grasp that until later in my career when i knew how to look back at people's influences and how that impacted their current playing but you were more into the big band thing that's interesting did you, were you in big bands in high school? Were there any kind of ensembles like that? Yeah, we had a stage band in high school. And we, and uh, besides the concert band where you played snare drum and bass drum and timpani, there was something called a stage band. Yeah, and I was in the stage band. But I also had two buddies of mine who from, from my neighborhood. And they were, they were into, but we were like buddy rich snobs. We were like, no, if you couldn't play like buddy rich or that, uh, you know, nah. We, we were naive and stupid and narrow-minded, <laughs> actually. But Buddy, Buddy touched me. Buddy Rich really touched me. And Bobby Rosengarten used to be the band leader on the Dick Cavett show. So I used to watch the late-night shows in, uh, in high school. And, and if I knew Buddy Rich was going to be on, I definitely watched him. Did you ever get a chance to meet him? I did. Yeah, yeah. Really? I, yeah. My dad... Uh, took me to see him. Uh, he used to play in Central Park at the, at the Woolman Skating Rink. You know the skating rink? They used mm -hmm. to have concerts there every summer. And Buddy Rich, I, I saw, saw him play there maybe three or four times. I saw him play at the Blue Note. I saw him play at the Bottom Line. So when you met him, was it a, you know, did you have a long conversation or was it just really brief? 
the first time I met him, he was he was really nice to me. I I, I, some, I got backstage and and he gave me his his autograph. I, I still have it. I remember meeting him once when it was 1982, and uh, I got an autograph. It was on a napkin, and I remember uh, asking him, "Say, what kind of sticks do you use?" He said, "Oh man, just two pieces of wood, man, just two pieces of wood." I was like, okay, now let me just go get some wood. Maybe I can sound like you. <laughs> but he was nice to you, right? Oh yeah, yeah, he was, yeah, yeah. Did you meet nice him as? A, did you meet him as an adult before he passed away? I actually did. I mean, uh, one t- I was playing uh, La Cage au Fol in nineteen like eighty three, eighty four, eighty five. It was a big hit back when that that was a big hit, La Cage when it first came, and we were playing the exit music, and it was like. You know, I mean, the exit music. People were leaving the theater. And I'm playing like this. And I look up, and his buddy Rich, he looked in the pit, and he went like this to me. Oh, man, that's cool. And then the next night, he was playing at the bottom line. That's why he was in New York. And then, and then I met him. I went backstage, and he was nice. I said, buddy, I was the drummer last night. He said, very cool, very cool. <laughs> and I think I knew some of them band members at that time. At that time, I was in my 20s, and uh, some, some of the band, the sax players, I knew some of them. So, it was, yeah, I got to meet him. It was wonderful. When you finished high school, you wanted to go study music, or did you want to just go play professionally? I wanted to study music. And what did you do? Where'd you go? I, I went to uh, Brooklyn College and studied classical percussion. I was also interested in uh, classical percussion, uh, timpani, xylophone, everything. How to, how to play in an orchestra. And my teacher was Morris Arnold Lang. They used to call him Arnie Lang. Arnie Lang, unfortunately, passed away this past July 5th. He was 90 years old, 90 years young. He's really, uh, all of his friends and former students thought he would really live for a, a really long time but unfortunately you know he had a good, he had a long life but it was kind of shocking that he died on July 5th anyway i studied percussion with him and it, he was a wonderful teacher so in in, in brooklyn in brooklyn college we have we had a percussion ensemble and we played a lot of contemporary music like um, written specifically for percussion ensemble and morris lang really broke them like if something looked really hard like oh my god like fives and sevens and changing meters and sometimes the notation would be uh it would just be like a squiggly lines or arrows pointing up or hit a gong and put it in water and i was like what yeah if you hit a gong and put it in water ding it makes it an interesting sound oh, wow. I've never very contemporary stuff so but he he demystified it he and he made it seem like you can do this even though you're you're a drum set player you can do this and uh, it was wonderful why did you choose brooklyn college and not another place like juilliard or berkeley or someplace else my high school Teachers said that Brooklyn College had a very good program at the time, which they did, and it was affordable for my parents because it's a city university, and it was kind of close to my school. It was convenient, affordable, and really good. When you graduated, 
did you want to stay in New York? Did you want to explore L.A. or go on tour? Or what was the next path right after college? Man, your questions are so good. That's just great, <laughs> man. <laughs> really, I'm telling you, it's great. <laughs> I, just, I just like to find out about people. It's, yeah, it's, man, it's, it's interesting great. to hear people's life stories and how Wonderful. they got to be where they are. So, uh, so real quick. So I wanted to stay in New York. I didn't, I didn't real I, uh, cause there's a lot happening in New York and, and, and I knew it, you know, I was, I was an hour subway right away from, I was, the D train took me to uh, midtown Manhattan, you know, and so I knew New York. Um, so, uh, I graduated from college and, uh, what year was that, by the way? 76. Oh, man, you were right in the middle of things. I was, you know? I was right in the middle of things, but I'd come coming to the tail end of the haze, the real haze. Steve Gadd was at his peak. So I got out of college, and I was like, what, what do I do now? You know, what do I do? So I, I started practicing more drum set and less xylophone and timpani. And Steve Gadd was playing around a lot. At a club called McKell's, Stuff used to play there a lot with Steve Gadd and Chris Parker. It was amazing. After I graduated college, I said, I want to do more drum set. And at that point, uh, Morris Lang knew the contractor for a chorus line. The, the Broadway show, it was still running. The original one was still running. And long story short, they needed a drummer to go on the road. I auditioned. I went on the road. I, they liked me. It, was a, it wasn't a complicated audition. For the contract, I just had to, literally, I went into his house. He was a drummer. His name was Herbie Harris. And I played maybe five minutes for him. He said, play, play me a little funk beat. Now, what if I told you to play it soft? What if I told you? So I did that for him. And, I, and, and then he said, okay, learn the show. So I learned the show. Hank Jarmillo was the drummer, who's a wonderful, wonderful studio drummer at the time. Uh, and he moved, he moved out west. So I learned the show from Hank Jarmillo. I played it, and the conductor Don Pippen liked me, and he said, "Okay, he's good. You can go on the road." So back in 1976, in order to prepare for a show, it's a lot different than it is now. You didn't have a conductor cam, video, and all that stuff. You had to just go in and record the person playing. Did you go into the pit? of Broadway to watch the person playing? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So in my case, also, I learned the percussion book and, and would because uh, I was still playing percussion because Ben Herman, I was, it was like, I it was like you said, there was a lot happening then. So Broadway still had like the older guys, the younger guys wanted to do studio work and clubs and, so I was one of the first younger guys to get into Broadway, I would say, you know. Did people look down on you? Did, did they look, look at you like, what are you doing? Look at all this other stuff over here. Why are you doing that corny stuff? Not did really. They look at it, did they look at it as corny or? No, they said, that's great. Because Chorus Line at that time was, that was, a, like, that was like Hamilton at the time. You know, oh, chorus, wow. You know, it was like, whoa. So, or ain't too proud to beg. It was like, <laughs> it was a good hot show to do. You know, it wasn't like, you know, My Fair Lady or something like. Right, you know, right. A traditional show. So, 
No, they didn't look down on it. And I, so the way I learned it, I had a cassette recorder. I got the, I got the music, uh, a copy of the music. I, had, I recorded it on cassette and uh, did my homework. But it wasn't as intense as it is now. If subbing wasn't, wasn't like it is now? It's a chorus line anyway. Okay. If there was a fill, Hank Jarmiller would play the fill differently every night. I watched him play it at least four times, you know. I didn't just go in and think, oh, I could do this. No, he would play it a little differently every night. Sometimes he'd play the groove on a hi-hat. Some nights he'd play it on the ride cymbal. Sometimes he'd play eight. Some nights he, he was very creative, and they allowed his creativity. And I thought, okay. And I kind of lived in his envelope of where, where, where to go, and I, I got accepted. So there was... There was some leeway. You still had to watch the conductor. You still had to play the right dynamic. You know, you still, you had to know the music. So you went on tour with a chorus line. How long were you out? I only did it for about eight months. Because uh, I, um, I wanted to get back to town. I didn't want to be on the road for that long. And, and then when I came back, I started subbing on chorus line. And there was another drummer who played the show, too, Earl Williams, who was a really good jazz drummer. So I subbed for them. And then Don Pippen, the conductor, got the gig at Radio City, and they wanted younger guys in the orchestra. So now it's 1979, and he asked if I wanted to be his drummer at Radio City. I was like 25 years old, and I got that gig. I didn't even have to audition for it. He, he just gave me the gig. The Radio City Christmas Spectacular? That was yeah. They also had a summer show at that time. They had the sum. They had a summer show. They had a fall show, like a little show. They did Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Then they had the Christmas Spectacular. They had a spring show. Then they had another. So they had, they had seasonal shows: summer, fall, winter, and spring. Uh, I did it for two years, and then Don Pippen got uh, another Broadway show with Lauren Bacall. It was called Woman of the Year, and he asked me to be the drummer on it. And I was very reluctant to leave the chair at Radio City to do a Broadway show. But I went anyway, and uh, he, uh, he, he said, I'm going to take you my next show and my next show. And he did. He, he, uh, I was his drummer. Why were you reluctant to leave Radio City? Because I liked it. And it was, seemed like a steady gig. And the, the new show I was doing, I was like, what if it doesn't run? What if it's only run six, you know? You know. It was, and Don reassured me. He said, Ray, I will take you if I have other Broadway shows. And he, said, and he, was, he, and, uh, he and I had a really good relationship. Really, he trusted me. He, he liked where I put the beat, and I, I could read how he, what he wanted. Were you... Doing the session work, jingles, TV shows, you know, playing with big artists back then in addition to the Radio City thing and eventually uh, doing the Broadway show. Were you doing all that stuff at the same time or was it more focused on Radio City and then your Broadway show? I started to do a little of the, the jingle thing um, as a substitute so the jingle scene back then was thriving. That was before computers and before uh, guys can do everything. You know, one guy can write a jingle, and obviously in the, on his laptop now. But back then, you needed musicians. So a lot of times, the, the, the older guys, I was in my 20s back then, 
the guys in their 30s and 40s needed emergency less. Hey, I got this gig I was on. It's going overtime, and now I'm going to be late for my other one. Could you can you uh, be available for my other one? So I was a sub. I was like the young guy who was, would run in and sub for them. And then every once in a while, I get my own jingle also. So tell me about this whole radio registry thing. I, I remember hearing about it, but I never, I get, again, I got here in 1993 and I heard stories about it. So radio registry was a service that connected musicians to recording studios, correct? Correct. So the peak maybe was the early 70s and now it's the late 70s and it's starting to slow down a little because MIDI drum machines. So radio registry, the number was 212-582-8800. 212-JU2-8800. Everybody knew that number. <laughs> so you call, because okay, tell me how it worked. So you remember the number, that's crazy. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, JU2-8800. Uh, so guys would tell me, he said, Ray, you got to join registry. So there were no cell phones or, or beepers, pagers back then. You always have to check your home phone, phone machine. Uh, so let's say I was, I don't know, walking my dog or something or out just shopping or something. Uh, and then I got home, it'd be... Ray, on my phone machine, Ray, call registry. We have something for you for tomorrow. So someone told either either an orchestrator, another drummer, a composer would call registry, and they'd be like an answering service for you. Do you remember a drummer named Jimmy Young? Very good. He was in the heyday, Jimmy Young. He was one of the guys I subbed for. He, he's still around doing it. Anyway, he... Uh, he would call registry and say, I, I'm going to have a conflict tomorrow. Can you call, uh, call, call Ray, see if he's available. So Jimmy wouldn't call me, but he would tell registry to call me. So registry was like a secret, like your own personal secretary kind of thing. But you had to call check in because there was no cell phone. So you always had to call your own phone machine with, you know, with quarter. You had to put quarters in. So the they would radio registry. Radio Registry would leave a message saying, Ray, can you do a recording session between 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. Uh, tomorrow? But you'd have to call and get that from your answer machine. Then you'd call Radio Registry and say, yes, I can do it. Then they'd book yes. that. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Was that clear? or like? Yeah. Well, so why wouldn't the guy just leave it? Well, because the drummer or the contractor or the orchestrator He's too busy to, to call 20 people. So he'd call registry. And, and, and sometimes I think registry would act as a contractor. And they would say, well, I know Bob Milliken is a great trumpet player. I'm just going to call Bob Milliken, even though this orchestrator, this orchestrator said he needed three trumpet players. So sometimes radio registry, they would act as, the, as a contractor. What if you knew somebody at Radio Registry and be like, look, man, here's $500. Just call me first. (laughs) (laughs) I was too young and naive to really know if what kind of I, that was very games people played. (laughs) I didn't play any of those games. I don't know how, how they worked, to be honest with you. I don't know if they worked, but I knew you had to be a fucking good musician. What if Radio Registry 
called Clayton Craddock to play. Yeah, I want you to play on the new uh, Fenier All Stars record. I'm like, yeah, I can't do that. <laughs> Fenier, <laughs> what what they call Fenier All Stars? You look, I can't play that stuff. But what if I'm the wrong person for the gig? I show up and I'm like, I can't play. You know, Latin jazz. You should have called Ooh, somebody well. else. Who told them to call you, though? I mean, how? how? Oh, so I guess whoever's recommending, whoever is recommending, they they know better. Yeah, like maybe who's the orchestrator of "Ain't Too Proud"? Uh, Harold Wheeler. So maybe Harold would say, "Hey, uh, he sounds great on 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 this Motown stuff." So I, even though I got the, uh, Harold, would be the the person who, to tell Registry. To call uh, I got gotcha. you. All right. Charles so, loves what you're doing there, so he's just assuming you can, you can do that too. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. Ah. That may, yeah. And again, I wasn't. I was past the heyday, slightly past the heyday. Well, in the late '70s and early '80s, there was still a lot of work up yeah, until like it was a lot. Yeah. 1983 or so when yeah. Drum Machine came out. That's right. Yeah, we'll talk about that in a minute. But you, your first show, what what was that again? Your first show on Broadway? A chorus line. There was a, a minute there that they made a change in the drum chair, and I was the drummer for two months. And that's, yeah. And, and then it was, it was crazy. I was in this little storm of they were making changes at chorus line, and Don Pippen, who was my guy said we got to get ray and he's so they still kept the two drummers and they added me as a third drummer so back then it wasn't like it is now that you remember you ever hear something called walkers yes explain what walkers are for people that don't know well they don't it doesn't exist anymore so i guess i could talk about it was like so based on audience capacity the orchestra had to have certain number of musicians in the pit. So a chorus line did not need strings. It was not written for, it did not need a string section, it did not need French horns, it did not need whatever, 26 pieces. It only had, I think it was a 16 piece band. So there was a little, they, so the producers of a chorus line had to pay 26 they had to write 26 paychecks, even though there were only 16. It it doesn't exist anymore. I see you shaking your head. So were you one of the, the <laughs> were you one of the ten? I became one of the ten. <laughs> so you got paid and didn't have to go in? Or did you have to go in? I since I this was all new, this was all like a it was a weird. It was weird. I they still had the two drummers, Hank and Earl, but they want, they added me as the younger guy to do most of the work, but they still they still got paid. Clayton, it was I was young, I was I was like I was okay. Of course I'm going to take it. Sure. So I did it. But the ironic thing is it only lasted 3 months for me cuz then Don Pippen got Radio City. Oh, I got gotcha. you. Took me to Radio City. So you did Radio City, then came back and did your own show with that Laura conductor. Cole. Yeah, yeah, with Don. Yeah. And what was that show again? Woman of the Year. And how long did that run? Two years. Oh wow! Okay. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, and then Don got another uh, La Cage aux Folles, which, uh, which ran about four years. Wow. Yeah, so I guess I was lucky. I was the right, gu- right time, the right place. I could play well. I had the training. I liked, you know, it, was, it, was all, it all worked out for me. But I wasn't doing hit records, you know. The guys back then, you know, you had tons of hit records coming out also, so. Well, Lacage was when? What what year did that start? 83. 83. Okay. 1983. I was a, well, I was about to be a senior in high school. Yeah. And, oh, really? Uh, okay. Yeah. So I You're remember. Great, what's that? You look great. Oh, man. That's a lot of, lot of wheatgrass juice and kelp. Really? <laughs> I'm just joking. <laughs> Nineteen eighty-three. I was a uh, rising senior in high school in Manchester, Connecticut. I was into Parliament Funkadelic. Well, actually, they were on the back end of their career, but I was into the time. I was into oh man, Cameo and Slave, and also was into Rush because of moving pictures and the Police. But I was also into this thing called rap music. You know, it was. Some people called it hip hop. You know, I was in Connecticut and I would listen to WBLS and 98.7. I remember back then I used to have like on Friday and Saturday nights when it was clear, I was able to listen to WBLS and Kiss FM by holding up an antenna like this. I I hold it up. (laughs) I'd stand there like a, (laughs) like a God, because if I stood in this place, I'd get reception of, of Mr. Magic's rap attack. And I'd hear all this stuff. I'm like, Man, New York City is cool, man. I can't wait to live there until I actually lived here. And I'm like, my God, it's so goddamn stressful. But I idolized and revered rap music, which I still do. And from like 19, obviously 79 until I feel like the early 90s, rap music was just so creative. But rap music started out with bands. Then they went to drum machines. Now, drum machines were prevalent in the early 80s, too. And I always ask people that went through this transition, how did you deal with uh, the advent of drum machines and how did that affect your career? Thank you for listening to the Broadway Drumming 101 podcast. This is Clayton Craddock, and you've been listening to my conversation with Ray Marchica. Stay tuned for more. If you like what you hear on the show, subscribe to the Broadway Drumming 101 newsletter at broadwaydrumming101.substack.com. That's substack, S-U-B-S-T-A-C-K.com. The Broadway Drumming 101 newsletter is your one-stop shop for everything you'll need to know about playing drums for Broadway musicals. When you subscribe to the newsletter, you'll learn about what it takes to be a successful pit musician with content delivered directly to your email inbox two to three times a week. For $5 a month or $50 a year, you'll have a backstage pass to the world of a Broadway drummer playing on a hit show. As a paying subscriber, you'll receive behind-the-scenes access to the life of a musician who makes a living on Broadway. You'll also be able to read every post, not just those occasional free ones. You'll get access to all newsletter issues in the archives and have an ability to participate in subscriber-only comments and events. 
If you become a founding member for a gift of only $75, you'll receive discounted private drum lessons, an opportunity to watch Clayton play in the pit of his show, and a 25% discount on future promotional products. If you'd like to make a direct contribution to the production of this show, you can reach us at Venmo at Clayton-Craddock, Cash App at Syncopated, that's C-I-N-C-O-P-A-T-E-D, or PayPal at Clayton Craddock. Any amount of support will be appreciated. Thank you for listening. I was doing a lot of Broadway and shows to, to make a living. I wasn't a top call studio musician to make, to make a living. That, that wasn't so... It didn't affect Broadway. It didn't affect my livelihood that much in terms of paycheck and gigs because I would go to my shows every night. But I think it affected me and everyone because there became less and less work. So that's when I said I came in on the tail, like like 70, like 80. It's kind of the tail end. It's starting to come down a little. But... I was fortunate to play on those two, even though they had they, the, both those records had drum machines on them. Did you wind up um, learning how to program a Lindrum or or do any of that stuff? Was that necessary for you? I mean, I know you were doing shows at the time, but did you find yourself wanting to learn any of that stuff? I, I found myself wanting to learn, and I got the Simmons drum set. I didn't get a Lind. I got the Cork. Core came out with a drum machine that was kind of Lin light. Uh, it, was, it was like everybody started to, wow, this Korg machine is great because it had dynamics and you could MIDI it to other sounds. So I got the Korg machine, I got the Simmons. But you know what was happening? Every year there'd be something new coming out and you'd have, you'd have to spend literally thousands of dollars every year. Oh, you, the, the Simmons are no good. Now you got to get the Simmons. No, Simmons 5 is... No one wants the five anymore. You got to do the seven. So now you got to spend another $3,000. And they were expensive back then. So it kind of turned me off a little. And I'll tell you who was, who was uh, very prevalent back then. Sammy Merendino. Yes, I'm going to be talking to him soon. Sammy and Jimmy Braylauer, those two guys. I remember seeing Jimmy's name on backs of records. I didn't know him. Is he still around? I don't hear his name. I don't know where he is. Sammy would know. But I remember going to see Kinky Boots. I watched Sammy play because I just wanted to see what he did. And we just started talking about his life and his career. And then I remember him telling me, again, I was into Cameo and Slave. I remember him telling he programmed so many of those early Cameo hit records. I was like, come here, man. I just gave him a hug. I was like, dude, you're like the soundtrack of my, my youth. That's pretty amazing, right? Yeah, man. He's Plus, he's a great drummer. In answer to your question, I started, and that's how I got the gig with Dan Hartman, and that's how those two gold records came about. But then it was endless. It was endless. It was like, I don't know. I can't give you an answer like why I didn't continue and buy the next thing that came out and then the next thing that came out. I wanted to play more. I didn't want to be the, the programmer. So you were with Lacage, and that ran for several Four years? Four years. Four years, okay. And you went with the uh, conductor to another show after that? 
Then my buddy, Paul Bogave, who's a wonderful musician, he asked me to do Starlight Express. Remember that show? Mm -hmm. And I had a, a knowledge of electronic drums at that time, and that, that, that show uh, needed an electronic drum. They wanted electronic drums, but they didn't want Simmons. They wanted something more, a little more advanced. And I used a, a drum, a Dynacord. There was a company called Dynacord, D-Y-N-A-C-O-R-D. They had this, uh, it, had, it had the capability of the hi-hat to go So that's why they didn't want Simmons. And it also had uh, digital samples of acoustic drums, whereas the Simmons only went doo, doo, you know. Mm -hmm. So I yeah, so I I embraced technology, but not to the extent of like wanting to be the next Jimmy Bragalo or Sammy Marandino. I was more of a player, and I was doing Broadway at the time, so I was fifty fifty. Prior to the fifty percent rule, where Broadway musicians could take off fifty percent of their shows, um you had to be there most of the time. Yeah. <laughs> was there any kind of special arrangements that you could make with conductors back then where you could take off more often? Or they always expecting you to be there? Things started to change around 1980 when I got my, when, after I left Radio Radio City, I had to do all the, basically, I didn't take off. Radio City. So you never, did you never have a sub? So what if you were sick one day or just... Oh, I had subs. I had subs. Okay. Okay. Yeah. You I mean, you had to have subs, but most guys didn't take off 50% of the time. Right. But you had to have subs. Starlight Express was your next show. That was in the, the late 80s? Correct. That was like... Uh, it, I believe it was 86 to uh, 88. Ran, I think that ran 22 months, 22 months, yeah, 86 to 88. Yeah. Okay. You said there was a lot of, there was more electronic percussion or electronic drums in that show? Yeah. Yes. Ah. Yeah. And the the orchestra was in a, a remote room. That's, that was like the beginning. Cats, I think Cats was the real beginning of, uh, an orchestra not being in a pit. Mm. Yeah. And then Starlight Express, we, they, they needed, they needed the pit area because they were, uh, it was a roller skating show and they needed the, they built a yeah, platform over the pit so that the roller skaters can use. Yeah. So that they, they couldn't use the pit for the orchestra. One thing I ask a lot of people in general, do you watch any, or all of the shows that you do from the audience? Have you seen? Any? I have. I have. Yes, I have. A lot of musicians don't want to do that because when, they, when they're in the audience, they see the show and then they hear, uh, they hear the sound from the audience and they're like, wait a minute, I can't hear that bell that I play. Or I can't, I, you know, they don't turn up this and they don't turn up that and they get discouraged. This chorus line, I couldn't believe it. The first, so... I'd be in the, the chorus line, uh, well, like I said, it was a 16-inch, about a 16, I think a 16-piece band, and it was, you know, brass and percussion, upright bass, electric bass, guitar, it was like everything. Then when I watched the show from the audience, I was like, 
what? <laughs> I was happy. I played Mamma Mia. I was happy with the drums in Mamma Mia. But not to throw the sound designers or the sound men under the boat or anything like that. I think the lyrics and the, and the dialogue, like the producers and the directors want that up front so that it's a story. They want to hear the story and the lyrics. So, there's the, so I think there's a fine, there's got to be a balance. So what's not happening now is like pits used to be more in the open. You know, they used to be uh, wider. I think over, I know over the years, I don't know how many theaters, they built more seats in the front. So they took away pit space where the pit used to be more open and the natural sound used to come out. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't happen anymore. And then, then everything is mics now, come to the speakers. It's different. Do you prefer the way it was back then as far as being in the pit as opposed to the way it is now where you're in a separate well, room? Again, I missed that part of it. I missed that, that heyday. I'm talking about when in the 50s and 60s. That's before mics. So I can't really say, I can't really comment on that. Because my, my first show was Chorus Line, and that was... They covered the pit and chorus line because they wanted it to seem like it was a dance or a dance rehearsal room. Ah, that's true. That's yeah. true. I never saw a chorus line. I need to see it. But I remember seeing a plaque when I was at Memphis the Musical at the Schubert Theater. That's where it ran, correct? Yes. Like 15 years, right? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. A long time. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So the late 80s, we get into the... Uh, after Starlight Express, what was what was the next one after that? So then, then uh, I had I had uh, some downtime. I became a dad. Uh, I was married, and I was fortunate enough to start working with uh, Tommy Toon. Tommy Toon has won. I think Audra McDonald has tied him now. So I think Audra has nine Tony Awards. I think six. She might have six. Yes. Okay, Tommy Toon has nine. Really? Yeah, because he's a choreographer, performer, and a director. So he won Tony. He's won Tony Awards in all those categories, three wow. different categories. So I, 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 so after Starlight Express, Tommy Toon was touring the country, and I went on the tour with him. And then after that, Will Rogers Follies. Tommy Toon was the director, choreographer of that. I think he won at least two Tony Awards from that one. I was the drummer for that one. When you had these shows, what was your approach in uh, training your subs? You know, back then, I guess, you know, I don't know if they had, when the conductor cam came into play and having recording of that, uh, was there any kind of special thing that you did to make sure that your subs were prepared? Or you just you just said, here, learn this and come back to me when you're ready. I would mark my parts because uh, I had subbed when I didn't have my own show. I know I know what it's like to sub, and I would I would think of my subs uh, and say, well, I better put this in red. You know, that's that symbol crash is important, or uh, yellow highlighter. Watch the conductor here. So I would just mark the music as best as I can. Usually, 
not too elaborate. I, I didn't use, you know, some people use uh, little yellow stickers or red colored stickers. No, I would use a highlighter or a red pencil, and I would I would tell the guys, watch out here. This, this symbol crash is important. Watch here. It's tricky. The conductor's holding. He's going to cut off. He's going to do upbeat, and then you come in. You know, mm. well, sometimes they might just do this if there's a fermata and then there's point. So I would just tell them, hey, there's no prep. It's just going to point. Stuff like that. No, I would, I'd be conscious to, to uh, I wouldn't let the guys just go, ah, it's easy. Just, no, I, I wasn't one. No. <laughs> what, what's the, what do you think is the most important thing that a sub should know when they want to sub for someone like yourself or just sub in general? What do you think? is the most important thing that someone should know. Thank you for listening to the Broadway Drumming 101 podcast. Head over to the Broadway Drumming 101 YouTube page where you'll find unedited conversations that I've had with some of your favorite musicians. On the YouTube page, you're going to find bonus content that I don't feature on my Instagram page or here on the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and click on that little bell at the top so that you'll be notified when a new video is uploaded. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for more.